I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. So uh, at this time, I'm going to uh, just give you a quick rundown. So we're in a we're in a series that's going over kind of the 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 model of our church, but it's really based in the scripture that you just heard, First Corinthians nine nineteen to twenty seven. Uh, this is a sermon series that I preached uh, years ago when I was first starting. We're revisiting it because it is really critical uh, to what we are doing. Um, next week we start into our next series, which has to do with just the, the basic. Uh, beliefs or doctrines of the Christian church. Um, this one is, uh, I think, going to be really good. I think it's really necessary. I'd really encourage uh, all of you here online to uh, join in for that and try to be present for as much of it as possible, because these are really building blocks uh, for the Christian faith. And if you, uh, if you kind of take the, the latter ones without the former ones, you'll miss a lot of the reasoning uh, behind. We'll try to make a lot of those connections, but I really do think it's a series you want to uh, be here for in its entirety. So uh, at this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us in a prayer uh, based around the Lord's Prayer, and this time it's going to take into consideration uh, the history of God's people, as you heard from Psalm 106 a little bit. So if you would join me in prayer before we uh, hear the word. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're our deliverer, as you brought Egypt uh, or Israel out of Egypt with miraculous power. You've brought us out of our enslavement to so many other enslaving vices through Jesus by his exhibit of your power over death itself. You are worthy to be praised. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you promised Israel the land of Canaan and your presence with them on the journey, you promise us eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. And it begins now. You said your kingdom has already come in Jesus. Teach us to long for your kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread, because as with our ancient forefathers, we have many things that concern us. What will we wear? What will we eat? We fear you won't provide for what we need as we await your return. Give us bread that can only come from you. Provide for our needs. Provide for people like Steve, who broke his arm last week and has 25 screws in his elbow. Take care of him and comfort him. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As with our forefathers, we doubt your goodness, but when we don't worship you as we should, we prove that we doubt your goodness. We look at our own needs and desires and become consumed. We turn from you and we turn on others. Forgive us and teach us to forgive each other. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You've promised to deliver us from our enemies. Our predecessors doubted your ability to finish the work that you started in them. Teach us to believe that you will complete the good work you've started in us so we don't turn to quick, to quick fix promises and the enemy that tempts us. Bring us safely into our eternal habitation, for to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. This week, uh, we're entering into the last of, our, of this series, and a few weeks back, I shared that I've been seeing a personal trainer. Uh, 
And this is new for me. This is, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, as many of you have heard, I'm a, I'm a trailer park kid. This was reserved for pro athletes. Um, I'm not a pro athlete. I just discovered that I, I really needed help. So um, this personal trainer was noticing things um, that nobody's ever noticed. I've, I've, you know, I've been to the doctor. I've done other things. I play basketball with friends. But he noticed things like my right leg was uh, weaker than my left leg, as I shared. And he, and he said, so, you know, your back hurts on the right side, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, yeah, you, every time you jump, you twist your leg. It shows that it's weaker than the other leg, and that's your problem. Um, and so now I have to, you know, exercise both of them equally, and I'm trying to balance it out. And, uh, and when I shared that with you a few weeks ago, I, I compared that to our need for the entirety of the church, um, because people outside of us can see weaknesses in ourselves that we cannot see. Um, that's the value of going to somebody like a physical trainer. They can watch you. They can pay attention and see weaknesses that you cannot see. And within the church, within people who can actually know you and know your, your spiritual condition and watch you walk in it, they can see the things that you cannot see. And I referred that, uh, that week uh, forward to the kind of athletic simile that, that this, this passage ends with, and that's the, uh, the focus of today. This idea that don't you know that all the runners, all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So this uh, draws on imagery from what's called the Isthmian Games in Corinth, and these were Olympic-type games. Uh, where heroes were made. These weren't just activities. Uh, these, were, these weren't just going to personal training. These were passions. These were the great athletes and the cultural heroes of their day. And everyone understood the commitment that they made. Young Corinthians aspired to be like these athletes. As I once ran suicide sprints when I played basketball, and why in the world did I subject myself to that? This was difficult for me, guys. I was a baggy pants guy running these kind of like suicides. I had to pull up my pants and buckle my belt. As a young kid in the 90s, this was a sacrifice. And why did I do it? Why did I make this kind of sacrifice? Because I wanted to be like Damon Stoudemire at the time. So yeah, anybody remember Damon Stoudemire? So he was our U of A star, rookie of the year, 1996 with the Toronto Raptors. Um, I would watch this guy's like you know, he's the shortest guy out there. I'm the tallest guy in my middle school. He's still taller than me, but I'm like, this, I can do this, you know? So I ran, I tried, I imitated his work so that I could be great uh, as he was great. And our important athletes, they win things, right? They win trophies. I've got, I have almost every single one of Damon Stoudemire's cards from his rookie year, hundreds of them that I collected as a kid. And a bunch of them, from the end of the year, have him holding his Rookie of the Year trophy, right? He, he got something for all of his hard work. And when runners run today, like runners like Usain Bolt say, they collect gold medals, these enduring symbols of their hard work and their victory. And the Corinthian athletes, they got wreaths at the time. So they hadn't quite figured out, you know, how these things work yet. They got these pine or parsley or celery even wreaths, and you can imagine how long they lasted, right? How long does your, how long did our Christmas tree last? You know, pine, a month, maybe, with help, with water, right? Imagine some celery. How long is that going to last, you know? And I don't know how they took care of these. Maybe it was like pressing leaves. They stuck them between some heavy stuff. I don't know. But they got these, these tokens of their victory, these wreaths that would perish, and they did things. They worked very hard um, to keep themselves in good shape. And then when they would run, I know this is weird, but they would run naked. And why did they run naked? Because back in the day with the flowing robes, you know, we know how wind resistance works, right? They didn't have tights like Zach. Um, you know, if you follow his weightlifting, you know what I'm talking about. But they, they didn't have these kinds of things. They, they had to run with no clothes on to get the glory, because they needed as little wind resistance as possible. 
and they practiced. They would run. Their race was from one post back to another, and there were difficulties. There were things that could trip them up if you turned wrong and ran into another athlete. So they practiced all of their, their skills to make sure that they wouldn't have any of those issues so that they would have a chance to win. And they did it for the glory to be praised, to be noticed, and to get that wreath, right? And Paul saw in this an incredible similarity and dissimilarity to our Christian calling. The Christian calling takes work and care and discipline. But the difference is that our calling has more on the line. It's more important. It's not just our glory, it's the glory of God. It's not our glory alone. It's the salvation of eternal souls for eternity and from all the tortures that come from worshiping idols. It can save people's lives. So today I want to exhibit from the scripture three things about Christian discipline. The aim of it, the work of it, and the motive. The aim, the work, and the motive. So first I have to highlight, when we talk about the aim of Christian discipline, I need to highlight a scripture like the one that we've read today comes across very very differently when you read it outside of its context. And this is hard because, you know, Psalm 106 felt long. Imagine if we did what the early church did and read the entire first, you know, book of 1 Corinthians. That's what they would have done. They would have read the whole thing. Um, that they probably wouldn't have preached for very long, but they would have read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. But when you read the whole and you see the context in the history of the book and the meanings of the words of the book and the connection of the entire book to itself and the connection with the rest of God's word, some things stand out that are very, very important. When we, uh, my small group was reading this book, and a few of the times we would come across a passage and go, and I remember, uh, I think it was Joy in our small group one time said, you know, I thought this scripture was about just me, but when you read it, when you've been reading the whole book, it's about the whole church. I was like, yes, that's right. You don't see it when you just pick out scriptures. You have to see it in the whole. And so a verse like this can be read as a solo project, but it is very much not a solo project. The entire book of 1 Corinthians has been about an entire church and their life together before God as co-worshippers of God, and these verses are no exception. And they are right on the heels of this. the rest of this section we've been preaching through that is kind of Paul's missionary manifesto, which is he's saying, this is what I do to save other people's lives, and this is why I do it. And then he explains this part about how he disciplines himself. So the discipline, the aim of the discipline is about the mission that we have as God's people, okay? You might ask, okay, what about though, is, this, you, is there anything in here about me getting to heaven? Or is there anything about, in, in here about me knowing that I'm like right with God? And I would say it could be that, but it's not what Paul's talking about. It, Paul is talking about how we need to lay down our rights in order to win over more people who don't understand the good news of the gospel, to discern how to lay down rights in order to love people and to bring them into the faith so Chances are this is about that, because that's what he's just been teaching us. The discipline is about how to do that. He wouldn't completely change course or change the subject. Now, I will say, just to consider this, he he is probably referring back to the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. He's probably not just summarizing this point about winning other people. So then, okay, what about that? If he's referring to the rest of the book, He's referring to other issues too. There was sexual immorality, there was worship issues, there was meat sacrificed to idols um, in the rest of the book. But if you consider this, even those issues weren't framed as just your problem. The, The sexuality issue wasn't just framed as like, hey, don't pollute yourself. Paul, in fact, had said a little bit of leaven spreads throughout the whole lump. The reason you need to deal with that 
in your church is because of the way it affects everybody, okay? Um, later on, when he talks about something like the worship issues, he'll say, here's why you want to not just speak in tongues in your group of people, because if an outsider comes in, the words you say will be unintelligible to them. They won't build everybody up. So here's why you wouldn't do that. It's really about not just you, but it's about others as well. That's how he's framed all of these issues. And then right after this, right after chapter 9, there's another kind of explanation of the history of God's people, which is why I read you Psalm 106. And Paul, Paul uses them as an example, the Israelite people, and he warns the people, he says, look, just you, you have been called to discipline your bodies and to reach other people by laying down your rights. And then he warns them, showing them the pe people of Israel, and he said, look, they saw God's salvation through the Red Sea. They saw what he did for them in Egypt. And then they, right after they got out of the Red Sea, they went back to things like grumbling and making idols, and, and they turned from God. So it's possible to see the salvation of God and then to not be transformed by it and to not shape your life into the image of your deliverer. That's possible, so be careful with that. He's warning them as a whole community. Now, another thing that can be scary about this scripture is this word like disqualify. And people will go, uh, does this mean like, you know, how hard do I have to work to not be disqualified? Meaning, how hard do I have to work to, to make sure that I'm a Christian? And a key thing about understanding this is, again, in the context. Because a few weeks back, I explained this idea that's really key, and that is that all throughout the Bible, the church or the people of God, and those are synonymous ideas, are described in two ways. There's the way that the, what a theologian's called the visible church, and that's the way that you might perceive Christianity. And I talked about, you know, things like how people identify as evangelicals and stuff today. And, and, that's, and that, there are a lot of people that fall under there that may or may not be Christians, right? But in, in perception, it looks like Christianity. And throughout the Bible, you see people that might be born into the community, they might opt into the community, but they don't have the faith of Abraham, who was the first of God's people. And that faith is one that trusts the Lord deeply, doesn't lean on its own understanding, trusts the Lord deeply for everything, trusts his word. So God had told Abraham, um, and this is, I know, a lot, of, a lot of Old Testament getting stuck in here for you, but God had told Abraham, go to a land you're not familiar with, and you will have descendants as numerous as, as the stars of the sky, all the nations will be blessed through, through you. And Abraham believed God, though it seemed impossible, and he was counted as righteous because he believed God. And here, Paul is saying, now look, in, in the people of Israel, we see that they were promised a land of Canaan, a place that they knew that existed, and they were to be a distinct people, a light to the nations. And they grumbled and complained against God, and they were cut out of the people of God. Why is that? It wasn't just because they grumbled. It wasn't just because they failed. What they did was they exhibited that they did not trust the Lord. They, in their actions, they exhibited something that was true deep within their hearts, that they didn't have that Abraham-like faith that trusted in the Lord deeply and was others-oriented, a light to the nations, they went inward, they grumbled, they made idols, they did whatever they needed to do to fill the void. That shows us something about what was going on inside. So Paul warns of that. He says, strive to trust, in essence. Strive to have the faith of Abraham. Make sure, what, look at your life and let it teach you who you are and be shaped in who you are as one who trusts the Lord one who lays their life down for others. And he reiterates at the end of chapter 10, after telling that story about Israel, he says again, serve others. And he concludes chapter 10, which is kind of the, the, the culmination of all of this. 
He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And when he says that, you have to ask the question, what does he mean by following Christ? And, and then I would say, what does Jesus, how did he save his church? Well, he laid his life down for others. He sacrificed his, himself in order to lift others up. And that's what Paul has been trying to teach you to do, teach us to do. Sacrifice your life that you might win over others. Sacrifice your rights that you might win over others. Paul is saying, I do that because that's what Christ has done for me. And that's the pattern. And you're to look at your life and ask the question, am I patterned after that? And if you're not, that little disqualification word should become important to you. And you would say, I want to repattern my life. Not to get right with Jesus, but because this is the evidence of being right with Jesus. And if you care about that, you're on the right track, okay? Be consoled. So to follow Jesus is many things, but especially to count others more important than yourself, which goes against the very fabric of our human nature. That is the hardest call ever. That's the hardest thing to do. And that's why Paul compared it to something else very difficult, being an athlete. And he used a sport of individual runners, but it's clear from the context of this book and other places like 1 Timothy and Hebrews 12. 1 Timothy, it's in the context of Paul's telling Timothy to lead others, and he uses the same kind of athletic metaphor. Hebrews 12 is about running the race that the whole church has run, the cloud of witnesses. It's an effort that is in conjunction with the entire church. And we all know that being a great athlete who isn't a team player can go really poorly. Now, I watched the Lakers win last night, okay? But the rest of the season has shown us something about LeBron James. And you need more than LeBron James to win championships, okay? This is just athletic metaphor for the three. All my, all my basketball people aren't here today. But... But for the three of you who play ball, you know, you need more than just LeBron. You need the entire team. This is why people also in the NBA are so mad at James Harden, okay? I've got to say, I, you know, I love people in Phoenix, but I realized Phoenix developed James Harden. And uh, James Harden is just always trying to get on the team that's best for him. And it drives people nuts. Why is that? Because when you're about yourself, there's something just gross. It just is bothersome. It's just irksome. So as a Christian, it's similar. When it's about you and your glory or what's best for you, you should look at your life and say, perhaps I am training for the wrong sport. If I'm asking the question, what do I want? What do I need? What's best for me? Perhaps I am training for the wrong sport. Because the aim of Christian discipline is not personal salvation. That was secured for you in Christ. It isn't to be an impressive Christian or to have self-care. It is the mission of God is what you train for. To continue the work that Jesus came to do. It's the discipleship of other people. It's how do you carry the gospel with self-sacrifice? How do you bear with others in discipleship with self-sacrifice? This is the discipline the world doesn't seem to have access to. Think about this for a second. I know I've said this before. If we want to be a light to the world, the world is very familiar with two things. One is doing what you think is best for you. Everyone in the world knows how to do that. That's the easiest thing on the planet. So if you get into Christianity and you expect to be countercultural, expect to be called to do the opposite. Jesus is not going to say, you be you. What is... What's going to make life amazing and beautiful for you, okay? The other thing everyone in the world knows how to do is point the finger and say, I am right, you are wrong. Everyone can do it. It doesn't take, it, you know, it doesn't, it's not hard to wrap your mind around, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody posture and say, I am right, you are wrong? What the world does not know how to do is to be deeply convicted of something 
and then lay your life down for the sake of others. That is a light to the world. And that's precisely what we're called to do. Okay? So the aim of Christian discipline is the mission of God, which is laying our lives down so that other people could come to see who Jesus is and that they might enter into his kingdom. Now, what about the work, the work of Christian discipline? It takes work to prioritize what's important. As I've shared on this, like, health challenge, it's been a lot of work. So, you know, um, some of you work at Trader Joe's. I know we have to shop there more now, and we have to shop at the healthy places, right? And it costs more to eat healthy. I still don't understand why a beautiful, incredible cake costs like $1.50, and a bag of lettuce is $50. Like, I do not understand why that happens. But it takes a lot of work. It costs a lot of money. Um, I have to pass by drive throughs that I love and dessert bars. There was a dessert bar the other day, so many of them, like 50 desserts, and I had to just walk away from this. And this is hard to do for me, okay? Many of you know me. You know, this is very difficult. Uh, and the first couple weeks of working out are awkward because I have to do all these weird motions and they make me do them at home. And so my daughter walks out and I'm on the floor like in a weird squatting position and she laughs at me. And it's awkward to do, right? And it's painful because I'm not used to this, right? And so it's, probably, it's even painful to eat vegetables. I, I think it really is. It, there's a pain in swallowing things that don't taste like sugar. And, uh, and it's painful to work out when you didn't before. Things hurt. Um, you feel like you might throw up, right? And so why is it worth it to do this? Why, right? Well, there are some very practical reasons. I can endure this pain of being laughed at by my kid and being in pain, or I can keep having incessant back pain and not be able to play basketball with my friends. I get to pick, right? Um, I get to, to, to think about that. Um, I can not like how I look and feel tired all the time, or I can feel better about my physique and feel energized, right? I get to pick uh, between these kinds of things. Um, and that's why these, you know, social media posts kind of work. I'll show you one that this, um, you know, I know there's no country music fans here. I know that. Um, but I, I still kind of like it. And uh, so I saw this picture. This wasn't the one. I couldn't find one. This is Tim, Tim McGraw. But a few years ago, I saw a picture of Tim McGraw, who used to be pretty chubby, right? He was, you can kind of get the picture. He would unbutton the shirt, but, you know, you just saw the top of his belly pooching out when he would do that. And then I saw this picture of him playing basketball with his shirt off, and I was like, dude, what, how, how'd he do that? And I looked it up, and he went on a diet, right? It's like, oh, he went on a diet, and he exercised. Pretty basic stuff. So those, but that motivated me. I was like, okay, if, if he can do it, why can't I do it, right? Why not? Now, those kind of motivations are, are kind of easy to understand. One hurts more, one, you know, one you look better, one you look worse, or whatever, but eternal motivations can be kind of difficult to connect with. And so Paul, he's arguing from the least to the greatest when he uses this athletic metaphor for us. And sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. He shows us, though, that if our perishable wreath goals, like you know, having the wreath or having the better-looking body or feeling better when we wake up in the morning, um, if, those, if we think those are worth it, how much more would the eternal kingdom of God be worth it? He's trying to tell us, like, think about this. Think about eternal, you know, lasting truth and the souls of people. Think about this. There's another time he did this. This is in 1 Timothy. And here he was talking about beliefs. He's talking to Timothy, his young protege. He says, now the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience is seared. We've never heard of anything like liars at all, I know. But um, who in their context forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything is created, created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, he's talking about teaching other Christians now, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now here it comes. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, isn't that, he says, it's a little, it's a little valuable. Godliness is of value in every way. Like think of every category of your life. This is valuable in every category of your life as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, Timothy, this this young man, he's training himself to have godliness in his beliefs so that he doesn't teach silly myths or irreverent doctrines. But his work is part of God's mission. He's teaching and training other people in the church. And so we have to do work like that to shape our beliefs. And that leads us to do true and reverent things. And it leads us to influence others to look to God for their hope. And when we have influence in other people's lives, just like Timothy, with our family, with our friends, with coworkers, with anyone that we encounter, it's our beliefs translate into what we do, and that impacts the lives of others. Now, just think about this for a second. If every Christian in the world was shaped first by the serving others mentality of Jesus and they lived accordingly, how much impact do you think that would have in the state of the world? If just every Christian did that, how much impact would there be if every Christian were serving others the way that Christ served them? It would be incredible. Now, the trouble is, why aren't we doing that? Why isn't every Christian doing that? Because we're doing something else. That's what we're, that's the, we're, we're always doing something else. We all work at something. For some of us, we've invested years and thousands of dollars in our careers, right? But we are working for something. For some of us, we've invested in our hobbies, our family, or recreation. We've put our time or our money into these things. Or maybe you don't see it. Maybe you're like, hey, I don't know if I am. I think I'm kind of a lazy person. Okay, but think about this. Are you thinking about things? Are you investing your mental capital into certain things? Are you talking to people about the things that are on your mind? Or perhaps you're worrying about something or wishing something were true, right? I've never met someone in my life who is not working, who isn't giving themselves to something. It's what we were created to do. We are all giving ourselves to something. We are all working, even when we feel passive. With my eating habits, for example, I have been trained and I did the things I was trained to do, right? Marketers would tell me that I needed fried chicken sandwiches. And I believed them, right? And I would get them. I would go to restaurants and seek them. One time, I drove all the way to Burger King to get the chicken because I'd seen like 5,000 commercials, and it was just looking so good, and I got it, and it was gross. But I, I spent so much time taking in that information that I went, and I spent my money, and I took my time all to just be let down entirely, and to go, ah, well, I should have just gone to Chick-fil-A, right? But, you know, I was hooked, I was committed, I was trained, I acted. It became second nature, and it becomes second nature to us to do something because our minds and our hearts and our habits have been formed in a certain direction. We all work, and that work leads to the way we live our lives. And Paul is telling Timothy that physical training is valuable, but the most valuable thing we can work at is our orientation to God, godliness. The most important training we can do establishes us in the gospel and shapes our mission 
to serve others faithfully. It reminds me of Jesus as recorded in Mark 4, 14 to 20. This is when he's explaining the parable of the sower. And, and this, this is something I think about often. The sower sows the word, Jesus said, and there are ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on, the, on account of the word immediately, they fall away. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. That's who we want to be. Now, Jesus said, as we all know, that, that there are some people, they hear the words of Jesus, and, and they immediately just go, no, that can't be right. This, there's this other voice in their head or the things that they've learned. They go, this doesn't fit. I don't like this. This doesn't work for me. Um, and then there's the, the people, and, and, and we've all seen this kind of thing where there's no root, and I think that leads back to that when I was talking about the visible and invisible church, that the, the beliefs, the things they've heard haven't sunk down to being things that they rest in and they trust in. So as soon as a hard time comes, they're out, right? But the one that troubles me the most is probably the one where it says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So yesterday I was at my childhood friend's funeral and he died of a drug overdose most likely. And he uh, was on a ministry path at one point, but knowing him, I, I, I knew enough about him. I, I believe that this is, a, this is someone who, who saw who Jesus was and who wanted to follow Jesus. But he had some deep, deep wounds and cares in his heart. And they, they had control. He was on a ministry path, but the cares came in and they just took hold of him and they beat him up and they ensnared him. Now, Paul begs us in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 4, prioritize what is most worth the gaze and the attention of your soul. Prioritize it. It doesn't mean don't care about your health. It doesn't mean don't care about your finances or other concerns. Just order them underneath the eternal things. And when I say eternal things, I said earlier, it's kind of hard to connect with that because some of us, it's hard to like prioritize something like an abstract heaven, right? Where it's, it's hard to go through life and go, so am I not going to worry about my finances because someday I'm going to be in, in heaven? It's hard to like, how do I choose that over this when that feels distant and disconnected from me? But that's not what I mean. Your soul is eternal now. Your deepest longings are pointing to eternal things now. Your deepest questions are pointing to eternal realities now. The fact that you love and you want to be loved is pointing to an eternal love that exists, existed before the creation of the world. And it's pointing to that now. Truth is real and your desire to not be lied to and to know what is true and able to be stood on is real Meaning is not a fool's errand. Your desire to have meaning in your life is real, but it will not be satisfied by getting healthier. It will not be satisfied by having a great body. It will not be satisfied by having a great savings account or retirement account. It will not be satisfied by being wealthy. Just look at the lives of celebrities. It's screaming to you. You will not be satisfied. It can only be satisfied by eternal and deeply true things. What we need most is reconnection and reconciliation. Really, what we need most is worship of the one who our souls were made for. And then we can live out of that worship and begin to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. An old pastor of mine used to say as a Christian, how can I not want to live a hundredfold life? How can I not want to 
you know, enter into eternity and stand before Jesus with like a throng of people that I brought with me? How can I not want to enter into eternity with like a list of good works that I did for his glory? It's not that that's what gets you in, but that would just make him thrilled and it would be joyous and good and beautiful. So what's the work? The work is to rightly order what we worship, to place God at the top, our beliefs, our worship, and our work, and God at the top, which, re- which means resisting the pull of other things and prioritizing. I'm not too interested in telling you exactly how to do this because I actually think this can backfire. If I were to tell you all, so get up at 5 a.m. and do your Bible reading, like that's maybe some of you should do that. But here's the trouble. You can do that for yourself, to be self-righteous or for self-serving reasons. And it could actually be your way to work for approval with God. That is not what it should be. It should be a way to find the time in your day when you are most focused to connect with the one you love the most. It's about your heart and your priorities. What I'd want you to do would be more like an inventory. Ask yourself the question, what do I give the majority of my time and effort to now? And then think about that and then name, therefore, what do I worship? What you give your time and your effort and your attention to is your God. It's what you worship. And then when you can see it and it's not likely going to be the God of your, your, you know, your creator, because we all are dragged this direction, to actively say, Jesus, forgive me, and renounce it, and replace that habit, that shaping exercise, with one that orients you back to the serving, loving, gracious creator of your soul. And whatever you need to do, do it. And if we all are prioritizing that and the mission of God, we'll be on the right track. And I think it would probably look different for us all, okay? So it takes work. But it's very important that we have the motive right. That's my last point here. You all have hung with me so well. Listen to this one more time. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And as I mentioned earlier, so many have read this and thought, oh no, I have to try harder and harder so that God isn't unhappy with me. One more piece from the funeral yesterday Um, a a friend of my friend's uh, sister got up and she said, one time I I talked to him about his faith and he said, I just don't want to let God down anymore. And she said to him, you didn't let God down. All you did was have a drink. Now, that that was a good shot at encouragement. But when I heard it, I thought, we can shoot higher than that. Here's why. It's not just that what he did wasn't that bad. That's not the gospel, that what you did isn't that bad. It's this, you cannot let God down because if you are in Christ, Jesus won the race in your place. Jesus pleased God for you. That's why you can't let God down. In and of yourself, you have. That ship has sailed. But in Jesus, he has won the race and he gives you his medal. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all these imperfect people who trusted God before us. You read their stories, they weren't perfect. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the same same Greek game imagery, a metaphor 
How are we motivated to throw off the sins and the weights? It's by looking to the one who perfected faith. Didn't perfect faith in the abstract, perfected our own faith. We stand, despite our imperfect faith, by looking at the one who had perfect faith and still does and who intercedes for us. We say with that father who begged Jesus on behalf of his son, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus says, I will. We run the race of our imperfect faith looking to the one with the perfect life, Jesus who lived faithfully, who worshiped God perfectly and died in our place and offers himself to us. And you might say, okay, that sounds great, but I'm still stuck on that disqualified word, right? That Paul said, I'm still stuck on that. And again, remember, he's teaching the Corinthians. It's kind of like the the analogy of bearing good fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear fruit. The disqualified person doesn't conform to the image of Christ because they worship something else. The one who worships Jesus and looks to the founder and perfecter of their faith is transformed glory into glory, more like Jesus. So don't worry about being disqualified. Look to Jesus. The race is one of sacrificial service for others out of love. We can't just preach it. We have to race and do it. At the end of chapter 10, as I mentioned, Paul concluded by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Because he looked to the one who laid his life down for him, and he trusted in him. Now, He's not talking about how do I get to God. He's not talking about proving himself. He's knowing. He's talking about how we run, knowing that Jesus has run for us. This is a complex like, combination of motivations, but it's really rich, and I want to try to work it out for you, and you're going to have to forgive my imperfect um, comparison here. But I was trying to think through, how do I get this across? Okay, Some of us will feel this like we need to be pushed to be faithful. We need a fire under us. We need somebody to say, get going. There's other, others of us who feel like we need to be consoled and told you're safe, you're okay, and then we can run and work because not, we're not you know, belabored by guilt and shame. And God does both of those two things at the same time. So think, think about this. 2020, uh, 2012 Olympics, four by 100 relay, I'm going to give you a little Usain Bolt and a little paranormal, and I hope somehow in all this you see what I'm talking about. In 2012, the final event of the Olympics, Usain Bolt is anchoring the four-person relay, okay? Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world. Think about the confidence you'd have going into a race knowing you have the fastest man in the world running for you, right? There's something to that. There's something that probably those, those Jamaicans were feeling a little bit better than they possibly might have, knowing. But still, right, they, they had concerns. They can't trip. They have to run as hard as they can because Usain Bolt isn't Superman, right? They still had to run as hard as they possibly could because the United States was running against them. And the United States, that guy, also broke the world record that day. Both of them broke the world record. So they're running against a very serious opponent. Now, but they have the fastest man in the world on their team. Um, now, think about this. What if you could take that, those three other runners, you could take those three other runners and you suck them outside of time, and they can see the end result. And they see this. They see Usain Bolt indeed finishing the race and winning for them. And they go, oh, it comes true. It does happen. The race is won. It is completed. And then they got shot back into reality. And they were at the blocks and they had to run. Well, they would know two incredibly important things. Number one, they were going to win, especially because of the performance of the greatest, fastest man in the world. But, they were also going to have seen the rest of that race in which all three of them had to run their hearts out as hard as possible before he did it, right? 
They would have had the dual motivation of knowing it's secure. He will finish it. And then, but it is also because I ran as hard as possible, right? This is another argument from the lesser to the greater. I know this is not the salvation story, but just think about how powerful that dual motivation. Like, I have to run hard, but I know it's secure. That's what Christians have in Jesus. We're called to endure and run hard, but we're told it is absolutely 100% secure, not because we ran as hard as possible. In our case, because Jesus ran in our place perfectly for us. Again, that's just the Olympics. They got a little disc of gold on a ribbon, and it had some value. It's, I'm sure it's worth some thousands of dollars, right? Um, they won it not only for themselves, but for their whole nation. The whole nation of Jamaica went crazy. They all won, right? So there's something communal and, and beautiful about it, but it was also just of some value. But what we have in Jesus isn't just a teammate. We have the one that ran the perfect race, not just for us, but for the entirety of the church. And that is of eternal value. We get his victory. God gives us his performance. But then, in what is shocking and alarming to us, the mission is handed to us through the power of his spirit. And we're called to run hard to train because people we know and love don't know about the grace of Jesus. People we know and love worship idols just like us, but they have no other God to stick above them. People we know and love cannot see the truths of the gospel because they're veiled by a thousand hindrances, one of which being that many of us Christians do not tell them or exhibit to them the sacrificial love of Jesus. All they see from us is we think we're better than them. So we're called to work and run, to be all things to all people that we might save some. We don't want to finish our lives proving that we never saw the way that Jesus served us. We want to spend our lives living out the mission that he's begun in our hearts. By faith. And that's why every single time we gather to worship, we come back to Jesus. That's what the table is for. The table is our return to the one who did everything for us, but it's also our launching pad for our mission because we leave this table and we take the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us out to the rest of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians refers to this table. He talks about how it really does, it really does show us our hearts. He talked to the Corinthian people about how they came to it and they would, some people would eat it all and wouldn't leave any for anybody. And he said, look, this is evidence that you're not laying your lives down for other people. This, this table is a discerner of souls. Don't come to it lightly. But at the same time, it's where Jesus has done it all for you. So come to it hungry and thirsty. Come to it like Abraham saying, I believe you, I trust you. And his work for you will be counted as righteousness.